Hi and hello, Watch fans, and welcome to episode 48 of Fratello On Air, otherwise known as Wasp 6.0. I'm your host, Rob, calling in from Dresden, and I'll be joined by my charming co-host all the way from Karlsruhe, Balaj. Today, we will be checking in with the four major sports leagues around North America and picking our favorite brand partnerships from the NHL, NBA, MLB, and NFL. So, without further ado, let's welcome the Hungarian Horntail to the smooth booth. Balaj, how are you doing, buddy? That's me. Hey, Rob. Hey, man. How are you feeling this fine morning? Um, I've been better. You know, long nights, I guess. Uh, corona times doesn't really allow us to meet friends um, or, well, go to parties. But sometimes you have to be- bring the party to your home, which is what I did the other night. So. Very nice. You know. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of jealous, to be honest. I mean, I, I miss those, those uh, long nights and early mornings that we used to enjoy all the time before the pandemic hit. But I'm sure those good times will come again. Yes, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. You know, sure. Well, I mean, we have plans of you maybe joining me in one of those long nights. Uh, yeah, that sounded a bit more romantic than I think you intended, but <laughs> fine by me, baby. No, no, no I intended like that. <laughs> oh, man. True, okay. true, true, true. Uh, well, I look forward to that, although it may be the end of me. Um, <laughs> and also, we have lots of plans, actually. We keep making plans. If you haven't listened to our previous podcast, episode 47 of Fratello on Air, which focused on the Lapinist, uh, that's uh, Camille from Poland, otherwise known as at Lapinist underscore watch restoration on Instagram. We discussed visiting this remarkably talented Seiko and Grand Seiko refinisher at his home base in Poland as soon as we're allowed to travel. And as soon as Porsche gives us a nice car to drive there in, right? Thank you, Porsche. Thank you. Thank you in advance. Yeah. In advance. Yeah. We, uh, as long as it's nice and shiny and clean and new, then we'll take it. We're not fussy. Uh, yeah. Even if it's dirty, I'll take it. If it's a Porsche. Sounds all right to me, actually. I could live with that. So um, we have uh, an interesting topic today. It's maybe low-hanging fruit for a sports and watchers podcast. We're going to be talking about our favorite brand partnerships. So as you may know, um, it's quite common practice for brands to choose sporting luminaries to peddle their wares. And these guys and girls often have, shall we say, characteristics that the brand wants to associate themselves with. And for us, maybe the, the more cynical watch journos, we just like to look at the watches and see what it is um, that they're bringing out via these partnerships. Perhaps we don't buy into the lifestyle side of it so much, but it is interesting nonetheless. And they're constantly recycling. So we've got some from the past, some from the present. We haven't speculated on any from the future yet, but I'm sure that our readers and listeners will be happy to do so in the comments below the podcast. It was really interesting, you know, to to put this list together because y- you would think that oh, it's going to be, you know, hundred people from each league, and it's really not for 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 many leagues. You don't really have ambassadors. It, it was not as easy as you think. Yeah, I did expect to Google MLB Watch Ambassador and be greeted with a list of about 50 to choose from. And I was looking for the big names that I recognized, thinking, oh, I'll definitely find something for Bryce Harper here or like Fernando Tatis Jr., as I constantly talk about. I thought this is going to be an easy one, piece of cake. But as it happens, I actually had to go all the way back to a 2012 partnership, which I don't believe really exists anymore actively. And uh, that's a good one, but um, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't as easy as we expected. Talking to something that isn't as easy as anyone expects, I have a little bit of news that I want to touch on. Um, it's kind of relevant to us as we attempted this week to record two episodes of Wasp, failed miserably because of the Watchers and Wonders rush of news coming into our inboxes, and we've ended up actually having to record one episode rather last minute. The same uh, happenstance has befallen 
um, a team which you, you may have heard of before, uh, Athletic Bilbao, the Basque uh, soccer club over in Spain. They are in the unusual position of having to play the same cup final twice within two weeks. Bizarre, right? Talk to me. Okay, so obviously football was very significantly disrupted because of the pandemic and there was months when the grounds were closed and there were no games being played, of course, not in front of crowds and not even behind closed doors for many months. What ha- what happened was that this came into effect with the final of the uh, 2019-2020 Copa del Rey uh, already uh, set up. So we knew that the participants were going to be uh, Real Sociedad and Athletic Bilbao, uh, which is otherwise known as the Basque Derby final. Um, but they never had a chance to play it. Bizarrely, rather than play that game before starting the next knockout season of the Cup, which I guess, you know, because of the logistical requirements and the time needed to get through all of those fixtures, they went ahead and played out the 2020 to 2021 Cup season before they staged the previous final. And we already have the finalists of this season established. And that will once again be Athletic Bilbao and this time Barcelona. So on April 3rd, that is, um, well, yesterday, if you listen to the podcast on Sunday, Bilbao will have played their first of two Copa del Rey finals in a fortnight because in 14 days time on the 17th of April, um, they will face Barcelona for the same title. So they could end up being the fastest repeat champions ever or the, the quickest losers or the fastest to avenge defeat. You know, there's, well, there's, there's four eventualities, I guess, that come out of it. They either win them both, lose them both, or split the pair. But it's um, fantastically weird and going to be one to remember for many years. Great pub quiz trivia, I think. Um, because if they, uh, if they win last year's final, which I guess they're more likely to win last season's final um, against Sociedad, than they are against Barcelona this year, who are kind of rounding into some kind of form. And then they go on to lose to Messi and Co. They will be the shortest champions of the Copa del Rey ever. They will only have been champions for two weeks before they have that ripped out of their grasp. So I kind of hope that happens because I think that would be a bizarre statistic. But um, odd stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, um, well, since it happened yesterday, what's the score? I don't know. I can't see into the future. Um, Let me make a prediction and say 2-1 to Bilbao. I'm going to go with that eventuality of Bilbao winning it by a scoreline of 2-1, holding the title for two weeks and then losing it in devastating fashion to a uh, a fizzing Barcelona side. Uh, That's crazy, right? What Corona does to everybody's life. And like, in, including sports and stuff. It's, it is bizarre. It's too funny. As soon as it started, as soon as the whole pandemic started, I was obviously devastated from a sports fan perspective because of the disruption and, you know, the shortened seasons and all of the cancellations and whatnot. Um, but to be quite frank, from a historian's perspective, it does throw up some really intriguing situations which have never been countenanced before and uh, will never be forgotten. I assume we won't have uh, pandemics every other year henceforth at least i hope not but this is this is crazy i hope not yeah no i mean it's been what let's not get into that topic the whole pandemic thing but yeah but when it comes to sports um as i told you earlier 2019 end of the year i'm at the at the barclay center in brooklyn with tens of thousands of people and (laughs) pretty much overnight it's it's gone and then you have bubbles and then you have games without any spectators and it's it's not fun so yeah we should we should get back to some form of normality pretty soon 
Yeah, as soon as we can get back on the road and get back to doing the things that we love, visiting Sports Stadia and uh, watch brands, then we we surely will. So let's let's get our optimism back up where it needs to be and start off by talking about the best partnerships in the NFL, the National Football League. Who have you got? Okay, so I brought a current one, and that is uh, Justin Jefferson from which team? Um, the Minnesota Vikings. There you go. Uh, and Angelus or Angelus. Um, it, it's not, you know, the type of partnership that, that I guess you're expecting because Justin Jefferson is a relatively new player. He's playing uh, for the Vikings since 2020. Um, he's a super young guy, 21 years old. Um, he went to LSU. Tigers. But, there you go. Indeed, yes. So, you know, he's a wide receiver for, for um, the Vikings. And the, I think this is why the partnership is interesting, right? Like, the brand is clearly investing time, obviously money and energy in a super young player straight out of college, well, university, who just landed in the league. So I was thinking about this Justin Jefferson partnership, and I was thinking how odd it was that a brand would approach a rookie uh, to create a watch for them. But then I did a little bit of reading about it, and I realized that it went the other way around. So Justin Jefferson, who you wouldn't normally choose as a brand coming out of college to be your ambassador because he's, he's not really known on the national stage, is actually a watch lover himself. And it was his team that approached Angelus for a partnership. And he wanted to design a watch with them. And they allowed him to do that. And maybe a bit of a coincidence that he went from a team that plays in purple, yellow, and white to another team that plays in purple, yellow, and white. So it's a no-brainer on what he was going to do with the color scheme. Um, but yeah, he's actually behind it. So he's the driving force. So this is not normally the way around it goes. This is maybe a little bit more akin to how Rolex does their testimony system, as in supposedly the people that are, are ambassadors for Rolex are Rolex owners and wearers and buyers themselves organically. Rolex doesn't approach them for these partnerships. It goes the other way around, theoretically. That's how it's supposed to work. I'm not sure if I believe it entirely. But here we are. This is where this new U40 Tourbillon came from, and uh, Jefferson himself is behind it and seems thrilled to be promoting the brand. So maybe he, like you, had a bit of a soft spot for the brand in the old days and, uh, and wanted to help promote them to a new audience. Well, in any case, Justin Jefferson, if you're listening, DM us. Yeah, we need to talk to you. DM us. Let's get on the line. I mean, if you are a watch lover, uh, which you obviously are, if you've gone straight to a brand and designed them a, a tourbillon, nice one, uh, very impressive. Get on the line. You know, if you don't already read Fratello, then somebody somebody put this uh, link uh, in in front of Justin Jefferson, and we'll we'll get him on get him on the phone in and talk to him. We actually have a phone in guest coming in later for the first time. Ben Hodges from the team is going to come talk to us about his passion for Formula One. So we'll take a break halfway through Benny. our roundup. Benny boy. Um, Benny boy. And uh, we'll see We'll see how that goes down with our listeners. Okay, so NFL. I went in a completely different direction. Um, mm -hmm. not, uh, not intentionally, because of course we didn't, we didn't compare these notes beforehand. Um, I went with Aaron Rodgers, um, who is the opposite end of his career from Justin Jefferson. He's uh, an established quarterback, the long-term starter in Green Bay. And uh, he is renowned by many analysts of the game and his peers as perhaps the greatest or most physically talented quarterback to ever play the game. So he's the obvious choice. You know, like you've got Tom Brady, obviously, who's a name that's on everyone's lips uh, for his long successes in the NFL. But Aaron Rodgers, in and amongst the NFL community, is, is really um, top dog in many people's eyes. And he has just last year announced a partnership 
with Zenith. And uh, when he came out as the new Zenith ambassador, he was seen sporting the new Chrono Master Sport, which was a very controversial but popular release towards the back end of 2020. Bit more of a straightforward one. This, what do you make of it, B? I like the watch. I like the brand and I like Aaron Rodgers. So I think it's a great partnership. As you said, he's probably, I guess it's safe to say, towards the end of his, end of his career. You would assume, I suppose, at this point, but Tom Brady's kind of changed the game, so who knows? Rogers could play until he's true. fifty-five at this rate, so I don't know. True, true, but no, but he's a he's a well-established player, and I think it's a great partnership. I mean, Zenith has done pretty cool things in the past. I love their partnership with uh, Swiss Beats. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I, uh, well, I did not meet him, but I saw him at Basel a few years. Uh, was it two thousand nineteen? Maybe. Very cool. Very nice. I'd love to run into. Uh, I'd love to run into Aaron Rodgers at Basel. Well, that would be a real thrill for me. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, but Swiss Beats is cool. I mean, for someone who loves hip hop like I do, you know, seeing him in real life uh, smoking a cigarette outside Basel World uh, with with the guy from Zenith, it's, it's, it was just it was just too much fun. But no, they do they do cool partnerships, and I think this this fits. I'm not the biggest fan of the watch. I have to say, I like it. Some people compare it to another watch. Let's not do that. As I said, Enron is, is a great player, and yeah, it's just a just a just a fitting partnership. I think it came at a good time for Zenith. Um, more than Rogers. Rogers doesn't need uh, a brand partnership, I don't think, but um, why not take such a respected and established name? I'm not a huge fan of the Corona Master Sport at all. Um, I, I I don't like it. I don't think it's the, the best thing that Zenith does, but I do think Zenith does a lot of really, really, really great stuff that deserves to have a light shone upon it. And uh, I think it's quite tough sledding for the brand at the moment, to be honest. There's um, There's not a huge amount of noise uh, around Zenith, despite that release, which did cause um, a, a week of chaos in the industry when you know those comparisons to another watch that shall remain unnamed uh, were flying around all over the place. But to me, it kind of, it took the focus away from the bits of the Zenith catalog I really would like to see more of. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Defy line, and I like the really classic El Primero uh, stuff, you know, this this modern update, it's just not for me. I think it misses like the soul of what makes those watches so good. I like the pilot watches too. I can I can live without the, the chronograph versions with the huddled subdials. I prefer just the plain time only one. I've had a few of those pilots on my wrist in the past and I really like the way they wear. Big watches, but really cool and legible and, and very nicely made. So for me, this is a good one for Zenith more than it is for Rogers. Um, it's fine for Rogers, but Zenith are the ones I think that need a bit of a push because all the noise is about Rolex and Omega. This is something I think they need to put them back on the map. So let's let's hope it does that. Which league are we going to attack next, Blaj? What about the NBA? The NBA? Okay, fine. So this is your forte. I will get mine out of the way quickly and let you talk more extensively about it. I went for the partnership between Dwayne Wade and Hublot. And uh, for me, that's a good one because... Well, Wade is a superstar, of course. Um, he's had a prolific career, uh, very, very well thought of. He's a three-time NBA champion, winning in 2006 and then back-to-back in 12 and 13 with the LeBron-led Miami Heat. No, the Dwayne Wade-led Miami Heat. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so sorry. Or the Chris Bosch-led Miami Heat. Yeah, any way you want to cut it, yeah. Sorry. My apologies. Um, it's just deference to the king, what can I say? He's a very cool guy. He started his career with the Heat in 2003, played... 13 seasons there before spending a year with the Bulls and then a year with the Cavs. A glittering resume that I guess we'll see him uh, inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame at some point, right? For sure, for sure. No, he's, he's one of the greats. I mean, th- this partnership is, I don't know what to make of it, to be honest, because we know the brand, we know that they love these types of partnerships. 
Dwayne Wade, he was a very interesting player, you know, when he was active, when it comes to sponsorships. And let's not get into his sneaker deals, but he was with one brand, a big brand, and now he's with the, one of the Chinese, or he was, or is, I guess, one of the Chinese brands. So he had some interesting choices. And uh, now I think he does TV, and he's a, a very good sports broadcaster. Um, he's he's really you know pretty eloquent. He does his homework, so I think he's just a, a great guy, a smart guy, and we should trust him when he when he says, "Well, this is the partnership I want to go with," and he probably knows it better than we do. So I like it, but I like Hublot. Like uh, I think I'm in the minority in the team here for like being a genuine fan of the brand, but I I always have been. I loved the Big Bang when I first started at watchmaking. It was one of the models that really encouraged me to to pursue that passion and. I don't know, maybe it's just because I've been exposed to the stuff they're doing firsthand in, in Neon, in the Hublot 2 factory, in the, in the foundry that they have, and the forge where they create all those wonderful materials and the experimentation they do behind the scenes for me puts them right up there as one of the most important brands in the industry. You can say what you want about the end result. The aesthetic is not to everybody's liking, probably to the minority's liking, but um, what goes into those, those watches is really worthwhile. All of this research and development done by a major group brand like Hublot has its ways of trickling down into more affordable timepieces and making the stuff that most of us can aspire to own a little bit more interesting and diverse. So I like it. I think it is a surprisingly a thinking man's brand beyond all of the razzle-dazzle people associate with it. Yeah, I, I, I guess I agree. Hublot is not my favorite brand, but I, as I said, I respect the fact that they, they do a lot of partnerships. And when it comes to marketing, I think in 10 to 15 years, Hublot will have its own paragraph in in uh, marketing books, like teaching people how to do watch marketing. I mean, what they did with, well, let that be football players, basketball players, whatever, as well as, as other ambassadors is really something special. And uh, you need to, you need to l- look at that from a marketing perspective. But yeah, there we have it. I have um, a partnership that's probably not active anymore, but it was a very interesting one. Uh, when I when I found out about it, I was like, "What?" And if I, you know, I still look at the name and I still look and I look at the brand, I'm still like, "What?" And that's uh, Kyle Lowry from Toronto Raptors and Citizen. A few years ago, what I did uh, an article when the Raptors became champions in 2019 on Fratello, and I was I was you know looking for uh, any type of material with a Raptor player. And the, and the watch brand. And that's when I came across this partnership uh, that happened between Kyle Lowry and Citizen. And um, I must say, uh, the, the, the Kyle Lowry limited edition Nighthawk that they released is not my favorite watch at all. But I found it very intriguing that a brand like Citizen would team up with, uh, with a guy you know, like Kyle Lowry, because I guess he's, a, well, he's not a superstar, but he's a known player. But um, he's not, you know, one of those, those names you think about when you think about uh, um, watch partnerships. And if you look at the watch, if you, if you Google the watch, it actually has a court on the dial, a basketball court, <laughs> which is uh, nice, interesting to say the least. Uh, but it's, it's a fun detail. Uh, but yeah, um, what do you think about that, Rob? I think it's... Uh... An interesting choice, like you say. I mean, he's obviously a, a pro basketball player and maybe he's not the first name on everybody's lips, but uh, perhaps he has connections um, with a particular demographic that citizens want to target. I mean, I guess that's how brands do these things. They they poll 
their audiences and try and figure out who is the most relevant person for them. There has to be a reason behind it. As we discovered with Jefferson, of course, sometimes those reasons are motivated by the players themselves. So maybe Lowry had something to do with Citizen. Maybe he's a long-term collector or something like that. I don't know. He's from Philadelphia, I think. Interesting. Does it? Does it have anything to do with Citizen? No. He's a city. I mean, Philadelphia is the city of citizens, right? Right. There you go. Perhaps that's it. So we're gonna we're gonna step away from our whiz round the leagues right now, and we're gonna call in our good friend Benny Boy. Balaj can go and have a lie down in the dark room for half an hour while I chat to Ben about Formula One, and we will. Benny, we'll be back with you soon. Well, listeners, right now we have a real treat for you. For the first time on Wasp, we have a phone-in guest. It's one of our very own Fratello team members, Ben Hodges, who is located all the way in merry old England. And today we're going to be talking to Ben about Formula One, which is his particular sporting passion. So Ben, welcome to Wasp 6.0. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, it's good to be here and start talking about some more sort of worldwide sports. I know you and uh, Balash have gone back and forth about the North American sports, which has been quite interesting for me. I'm not uh, typically au fait with all the different uh, leagues that are in America. So it's good to know a little bit more about them, I guess. And even if I don't necessarily develop a, an interest in them specifically, you know, hearing the enthusiasm you and Balash have about them is uh, is always fascinating for me. So yeah, it's been an interesting listen, but uh, I'm going to get stuck into some sort of European kind of originated sports, but then obviously it's gone completely worldwide with a bunch of different drivers, bunch of different manufacturers, all from around the world and competing in different locations around the world as well. It will be really interesting to see uh, how many of the Fratelli, or how many of our listeners follow Formula One and whether they want to get involved in the comments. Maybe it's uh, more aligned with watch collecting than perhaps NFL, NBA, MLB, and NHL, as Balaj and I often talk about. So I am, I'm kind of fascinated about this one. And there's a lot of really good watch stuff to dig into. But before we get to that, I would like to start off by asking you, how did you find yourself a Formula One fan? Where did uh, your passion for this sport begin? A uh, very, very long time ago. Well, I'd say the mid-90s uh, is kind of where it started. Weirdly, it started in the realm of computer games or video games. Uh, as on the console, I had an F1 championship game. Uh, I think it was on the PlayStation. And uh, that's kind of where I understood or learned about the different drivers, the different teams that they drive with. Um, Eventually, those names became synonymous with Formula One, and I just started recognizing them. And then, obviously, that led to watching the sport live on, on television, and uh, that it could, kind of just grew from there. I mean, uh, my driver of the day uh, back then, you know, mid-90s, was uh, Damon Hill, of all drivers, um, simply because he, he flew the UK flag, of course. But also, I just liked his style, liked his sort of uh, ethos as well. He's quite of a kind of a chill guy you know not very hot-headed just you know very on the level kind of guy but he managed to find himself in one of the top teams in the mid-90s with the Williams F1 racing and they were very very prolific in the in the 90s as well as the as the 80s as well so fantastic team um, and then it grew from there just kind of watching it regularly um, obviously I was a kid so I couldn't always uh, spend my my afternoons watching Formula One obviously I was taking hit there here there and everywhere um, but it kind of just carried on into my adult life, just uh, made made certain that I'd watch a race. If I didn't watch it live, I'd watch it on catch up and I wouldn't want to know any spoilers. Um, and then, uh, yeah, just just keeps on going. I mean, it's been even better watching it from uh, during lockdown, actually, because 
last year there was a, a huge delay in starting the first season opener. I think the season opener was not until July, so very much at the midpoint of the year. And uh, you know, th- all throughout that time, we were sort of in flux of uh, lockdown or mild lockdown. But on the weekends, I always had the excuse that, oh, no, we can't go out and do this and the other because of this and that. You know, we have to stay at home. So, you know, maybe made the excuse of watching a uh, Formula One race and getting stuck in, watching the coverage, all the, all the preamble and obviously the post-race analysis. Um, you know, four hours sat sat in the chair, just watching it, enjoying it. So, yeah, that's been uh, it's been a great experience. But it's just been something that I've, I've followed now for my whole life and um, can recount all these sorts of crazy stats or trivial knowledge that should you know take place of more important things but somehow it's just uh it's just there well it's interesting you should bring up some trivia because while you were talking i i came up came up with uh, a good question to ask you okay so um my knowledge of f1 is is relatively limited i do watch the sport i have a couple of friends that are really deep into it but i'm not going to pretend that i'm uh i'm the the guru sage that you are when it comes to this uh this forum but i do remember uh damon hill growing up um, I remember my friend had a, a Scalectrix car that he had, he'd, he'd written Hill on the side of it because he loved him so much. And uh, Hill won the title in 1996, if I'm right. That's correct, yeah. Okay, so I also remember, I believe that he he was the son of Graham Hill, right? He still is That's the son correct, of Graham yeah. Hill. And Graham Hill was also a world champion, right? That's correct, yeah, two time world champion. So here's the trivia question Who is the only other. Formula One racing driver to be to become world champion after their father won the title. A very easy one. So that is Nico Rosberg and Keke Rosberg. Right. Keke Rosberg was the 1982 champion, and Nico Rosberg was the 2016 champion. That is fascinating. Um, it's a really weird one because I believe that um, uh, Kiki or KK, however you KK, yeah, KK. it kind of fluxes, but KK I think is correct. Okay, he he drove for Finland, did he not? And and Nico drove for Germany. So KK drove under the Finnish flag for Williams Racing, and mm-hmm. Nico Rosberg flew on uh, drove under the German flag. Uh, for Mercedes AMG, and interesting that um, this was a deliberate segue. By the way, this is this is how I roll. You'll get used to this. We ran to Mercedes, and who else drives to Mercedes right now that we might want to talk about? Sir Lewis Hamilton. Sir Lewis Hamilton. It's funny, isn't it? When Andy <laughs> Murray was knighted, I uh, took great pleasure in referring to him as Sir Andy Murray before every uh, every match that he had on the tennis court. Interesting stuff. So, um, Sir Lewis Hamilton won his seventh title last year, and that equaled the all-time record of um, Michael Schumacher. And Hamilton entered this season the presumptive favourite. We're hoping that it's going to be a bit more of a tussle for the top rather than just a procession for Sir Lewis uh, to his eighth title. And the man who looks most likely to cause him some sleepless nights is Dutch driver Max Verstappen, right? Now, Max, I believe he had the fastest lap, as you said, uh, in qualifying and was really odds-on favourite to win that race, but it didn't come to pass. What occurred? How did Lewis walk away with the first victory of the season? So, yeah, Max uh, started on pole, so that meant he had track position as he started the race. Unfortunately, on the formation lap, his teammate, Sergio Perez, his new teammate for this year, uh, suffered like some sort of electronic gremlin. He stopped on the track. Um, 
he eventually got the car going so you know it wasn't too much of a problem but it meant the whole pack had to do a formation lap again um just to explain a formation lap is a lap that allows all the mechanics that were stationed on the grid um whilst they're getting the car prepared uh, allows them to get off the track and into the pit lane um it was only really until the 80s that uh, formula one figured out that having people on the track while the car's going past is not particularly a good idea um so eventually they they figured that out and now they allow this formation to to go ahead so that people can just completely remove themselves from the track and then the grid starts uh just just on the cars um in fact the the formation lap is uh started by a a rolex uh clock ticking down i think it's 10 minutes past the hour starts the the formation lap but at every single race the camera uh pays a lot of attention to the clock and just as the hand kind of ticks over um the clock itself has rolex written on it but it's got a uh, a fluted style bezel uh surrounding it like like the date just or the day date um so it's quite a, quite a cool little cameo for for rolex rolex obviously sponsor the whole sport um but yeah so the, the way the race uh kind of formulated was that uh verstappen had a good start he was able to get out in front um there was a there was a crash at the back with a, a new rookie driver called uh, Nikita Mazepin uh, or Mazaspin as as people are calling him now because of his uh, <laughs> uh inability to finish a complete lap without spinning <laughs> um i hope that name doesn't stick but it uh, it seems quite uh, it seems quite fit at the moment um and uh the way the race unfolded was there there was a safety car and then i think there was another uh, a mini accident so there was a virtual safety car later on um, but still had Verstappen out front. He wasn't completely running away with it. It wasn't like a, a typically dominant Mercedes kind of run from the front and run it till the end of the track, end of the race. Um, but it um, it was it was touching distance. I think one to two seconds at most really um, separated them. But uh, Mercedes elected to use this undercut te- uh, strategy for getting ahead in a race when they're slightly behind. So an, an undercut is when you uh, pit before the lead car, hoping that with fresh rubber, you're able to set some seriously hot lap times. So when it's their turn to go into the pits, they've worn their tires away a little bit more and going slower, and you've been able to set faster lap times. So if there's a one second de- deficit, you could overcome that by going two seconds a lap faster. Um, and you know if they have a bad pit stop as well, then you even you have an even greater um, advantage. And then I guess you jostle for position um, as they attempt to re-enter the track, hopefully staying just a nose ahead of them. And then you just have to manage your tyres until the end of the race if you're on a one-stop strategy or if that's a second stop too, I guess. Yeah, it kind of flipped. Uh, they had to stop uh, twice, actually, just try to eke out as much of the tyres as possible. Uh, and, you know, towards the end of the race, it was um, Lewis Hamilton from Mercedes out in front with Max Verstappen on fresher rubber, sort of bearing down on him getting very very close um but here is where the sort of uh the controversy uh, has arisen from this race so track limits is a, a thing um that's discussed at pretty much every racetrack that they go to and uh, track limits is basically when um the track has white lines that follow the track around and that is essentially the circuit um the problem is um it's easy to implement uh, rules based on track limits for qualifying sessions or practice sessions basically anything that involves a timed lap but when it comes to the race it's all about track position so 
if you were to delete someone's lap time because they've gone off the track or taken all four tires off the track past the white line, then, um, you know, if during qualifying, you just penalize them by deleting the lap time, you know, and that's the driver going, okay, I won't go out that far because I'm not going to get a lap time in. But during the race, it's much tougher to sort of enforce that rule. And what they found was Hamilton went off the track at the same point 29 times during Bahrain Grand Prix, which, uh, which is quite insane. I think Max was staying within the lines the whole time. But when it came to the very crucial moment towards the end of the race, um, Max Verstappen was just about to pass Lewis Hamilton. And Lewis Hamilton had a, had a back marker on his, on his right. So he kind of had to force his way a little bit towards the left and towards Max Verstappen as he was kind of going down the straight. Uh, as he got to the corner, Lewis gently kind of nudged um, Max Verstappen towards the edge of the track, but Lewis was in his right to take the racing line. Uh, but because Max Verstappen went off the track and completed the overtake whilst off the track, it was dubbed a um, leaving the track and gaining an advantage. And that, that's the kicker. When they say it's gaining an advantage, it's quite you know, subjective how advantage can be kind of perceived. I mean, surely going off the lap, uh, going off the track 29 times in a race, there has to be some sort of advantage to that because you're gaining lap time, you're gaining well, track position. Absolutely. It seems, that, it seems bizarre. So you're telling me that Verstappen's uh, infraction wasn't any more egregious than Hamilton's. It was just the context of it that saw him penalized and forced to give back the lead to Hamilton. Yeah, he, he did gain the advantage uh, by overtaking Hamilton off the track. Um, sure, but surely Hamilton's gained 29 advantages by like cutting corners or like drifting out further than he should have been doing uh, on the track if it wasn't an advantage or, you know, a, a, a show of poor driving on his part. Why would he do it? Well, you know, they wouldn't do it unless it was faster. And uh, the thing about drivers and Formula One drivers, they, they try to straighten a corner as much as possible because they want to get on the, on the foot on the pedal as soon as possible, get, get traction and put the throttle down as soon as they can. They don't want to be doing tight, narrow corners where they have to really turn and then they're scrubbing speed and, you know, well, sure. they have to wait until... I mean, it's just the same as watchmaking. Friction is the enemy of a Formula One driver. Yeah. And so the more they're turning into that corner, the more pressure they're putting on the tires and the car and they're losing energy all over the place. They're bleeding it. So it makes perfect sense, but it just seems odd to me because I didn't watch the race, but I did catch up with the news afterwards and i just assumed from the way it was reported that um verstappen went way 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 off track like in a you know in a way that was just clearly like uh giving him an advantage cutting a massive corner and taking lewis out of the frame but if you're telling me that lewis hamilton basically did exactly the same thing but he wasn't penalized because he didn't well he didn't gain a palpable advantage i don't know how you'd say it i mean it doesn't he didn't go up a track he didn't go up a uh, position when he did that going off the track you know he didn't gain a track position advantage it was a time advantage yeah it's it's a big discussion point uh following the race and it's gonna go on and on i think um the problem that people have is that the fia have not made it clear because initially when they said uh you know you can't leave the track here they they didn't specify okay for for which sessions because the rules for qualifying and practice seem to be different for the race and what people, uh, you know, fans and drivers are kind of asking for is consistency. You know, if you go off the track uh, three times during the race, um, you're penalized. You're given five second, 10 second penalty. 
Therefore, you know, that's going to stop drivers doing it. They'll go, you know, forget getting point um, zero zero two of an advantage on this corner. I'm not going to waste it and and you know potentially get a five second penalty uh, or time disadvantage. So um, yeah, it's definitely been a di- big discussion point uh, following the race. Um, but I think uh, to his credit, you know, uh, Max did give the position back to Lewis almost immediately, maybe a couple of corners later, um, and. Uh, he was told by his team, obviously, to do that, and and so forth. His team were told by the FIA to give his position back, but I do do respect the speediness in which he did that. You know, to try and give himself time to do uh, have another chance at getting past Lewis Hamilton. But uh, it's definitely been a big discussion point, and, and Max himself has said that I'd have rather taken the penalty and uh, gone back a place than to have given the place back on the track. Yeah, um, he'd rather fought for the win and hope for the best um, than uh, than give it back. So, well, I guess if he's uh, if he's sitting on some fresher tires and he was he was nipping at Hamilton's heels all the way around the track, then his hope would have been that he might have been able to put some serious time into Hamilton if he had a clear track in front of him, and then uh, the penalty would have been not so much to knock him back to second. But I think every driver would rather cross the line in first position after pulling off what I'm sure they instinctively feel is just a legitimate racing move. I know. The track is there for a reason and it has to be followed to a point, but it does seem a little bit, um, well, yeah, unfortunately inconsistent. As you said, this is what people want to avoid. This is why rules in sport exist. It doesn't really matter what rules are in place. As long as everybody's abiding by them, uh, then we can have a good competition and find out who's the best. When you've got something like this, when there's 29 infractions on the part of one driver go unpenalized that could easily have gained the same time advantage, if not position on the track, and then one which manifests in a position jump, it seems a little bit harsh. But I'm sure that Max will hold his head up high and take a lot of positives from the weekend because there's a lot of positives to be taken for Red Bull, right? And I think now we're looking at this and thinking, well, maybe Lewis got away with this one a little bit. What do you foresee happening in the rest of the season? Is is Max the favourite? Well, Bahrain is typically not a Red Bull favourite track because it's quite wide open. There's a lot of straights. You know, speed has always been a disadvantage of Red Bull on the straights um, because they have the slight engine disadvantage. You know they're using a Honda-powered engine, whereas Mercedes are using a obviously a Mercedes-powered engine. But uh, this year, I think the Honda really steps up its game, and you know it's really, really close to the Mercedes-powered engines now. Um, so that typical speed disadvantage that you would have seen in previous seasons is not quite there. They've already shown it on a hot lap that Max Verstappen can outperform uh, the best in Lewis Hamilton. Uh, and Hamilton himself said he put everything he could in that qualifying lap, uh, and it still wasn't enough. It still only put him on um, P2. But uh, for the rest of the season, I feel like uh, there are some tracks which are very much suited to Red Bull, and in those tracks, I really can see them just really running away with it. So um, Monaco, for instance, that's going to be uh, a crazy race, um, especially with uh, pole position being the most up of utmost importance. Then there are other tracks uh, where it, they're shorter, they're tighter, a bit more corners, less straights. Brazil, um, you've got uh, Austria, the Red Bull ring. Tracks like those, I really see um, Red Bull running away with it. But then again, it might swing the other way. It might be that Mercedes um, using their sort of engineering might to, to push themselves and get even further uh, and improve lap times. Well, talking of engineering might, it's probably time we flipped over to what's on our wrists. So I often get a lot of stick for forgetting to do this at the top of the show, but it's time to do a hand gelengs controller, otherwise known <laughs> as a wrist check. So what have you got on today, Ben? 
on my hang lengths, I'm wearing a Rolex Daytona, of course. Of course you are. Could it be anything else when we're talking about motor racing Very no and actually i started the uh started the chronograph just as we started recording as well so just uh just finding a use for for the uh, elapsed timing timing functions here but uh yeah it's quite handy very nice how are those uh screw screw down pushers working for you very fiddly and uh, <laughs> the thing i find is that um when i'm unscrewing them i grab hair from my wrist hair from my hand oh dear and then it just gets caught up as i'm unscrewing it and then i and then sometimes when i screw it back in I screw it with a hair still stuck in. So Ooh. when I get to take it off, I just pull a hair out. And it's quite, uh, quite alarming. Yeah, I've, I've been there with uh, screw down crowns that I've been fiddling around with on my wrist that I shouldn't have been. And that is uh, just desserts, I believe, on my part. I'm wearing my Omega Speedmaster Broad Arrow 1998 replica. And nice. yeah, I mean, it's the only speedy I have in my collection. I have a Snoopy on the way, of course. I f- keep forgetting about this guy, but he's waiting <laughs> He's waiting for me in Switzerland to go and collect him. And uh, I feel quite bad for him just sitting there. Snoopy 3, by the way, in case anyone's wondering. Of course, I haven't managed to bag myself a Snoopy 2. And I was never too interested in the Snoopy 1. It wasn't really for me. Um, but yeah, got my faithful Speedmaster on and I'm wearing it on the Forstner JB Comfit. With the horned ends, actually, I thought that it would be a nice match with the uh, with the logs, um, with you know the the curved Bombay logs as they are. Oh, interesting! I haven't seen it with the uh, the horn logs. I've only seen it with the uh, the straight ends of that uh, particular bracelet. Well, typically, I don't like things like horned logs because I like straight, clean lines, and I was worried that the curvature of the metal would cause a bit of a unpleasant wobble in the light as it caught the light um what's interesting about it is because my wrist is so small 16.5 centimeters with this 42 millimeter speedmaster case the drop off of the forstner bracelet is excellent and the straight lugs you wouldn't notice uh, anything unusual at all but what happens is the horns actually stand almost straight upwards and actually protrude above the inner surface of the bombay lug um, and uh, it looks like it's got little devil horns at the end of at the end of the strap. And were it not for the curv- curvaceousness of this Speedmaster case, I think I would find it quite irritating. But as it is, I couldn't be happier with it. Um, I I know a lot of the Fratelli are not fans of the bracelet that this generation of Speedmaster came on, and I never thought too badly of it until I started flipping the Speedy watch head on different straps, and then I realised that it was holding it back somewhat. This, I think, is my forever setup when it comes to this Speedmaster, and I'm very much a fan of it. But enough about our watches. What about the watches that the guys on the track like to wear? Can you tell us some good partnerships, like who are your favorites uh, from present day or the past? What is it that you like about them, and which ones do you think fit the sport of Formula One the best? Well, you know, coming back to the Rolex, I think it's um, you know, pertinent to talk about the, the brand that sponsors the whole event uh, from a watch perspective, and that's Rolex. So it's it's uh, Rolex are the title sponsor for uh, for Formula One in terms of uh, wristwatches. They don't uh, sponsor a particular team or even a particular driver, although they've got some some ambassadors which are former drivers um, kind of in their roster. Um, but they they sponsor the whole sport. And uh, if you watch any race, uh, you'll see Rolex placards boards everywhere around the track. Uh, there literally isn't a frame. You would watch a Formula One without seeing Rolex strewn across something. Um, gets a little bit distracting. They use all this sort of uh, distance boards uh, they, on the back of them. They have Rolex written, and it's just repeated every single way you look. But they, they don't really sponsor a particular active driver. Um, 
But that kind of you know relates back to why I'm wearing the Rolex Daytona. I did, however, spot a uh, an Everose Gold Rolex Daytona with the Oyster Flex bracelet on uh, Formula former uh, Formula One driver Jensen Button, the 2009 Formula One World Champion. He was wearing it, uh, rocking it pretty well, I must say. Um, he was doing the uh, coverage for Sky F1, so he's a, a pundit now. Although he does run a race team as well. Um, but he was he was pretty good. He's pretty good in the uh, position of sort of talking about Formula One as as well as understanding the psyche of drivers and what they're sort of thinking internally um, and uh, sort of giving that away to the audience to be able to uh, digest. I like um, him very much. He was yeah. uh, he was a great character, just a, a nice, happy chap, um, great face, lovely man, and a, a pretty decent triathlete, I believe. Yeah, very very active guy. You know, still keeps pretty pretty active in his uh, even if he's in an off season. So, yep, um, great driver as well. He had the uh, the Braun Grand Prix um, team back in two thousand nine, which is a team that existed for one season. Um, it was uh, a takeover from Honda F one Racing the year before, and then a year later it became Mercedes uh, AMG, which are you know massively successful as uh, as you well know. Um, but uh, I think the livery of the time uh, that he was he was driving in the 2009 Braun Grand Prix, um, sort of fluorescent green yellow against the white, uh, with very minimal sponsorship on the car, it was just an absolute beauty. Yeah, it was a classic one to me. Um, I, I would definitely say that was a yellow, um, maybe just my eyes, but I thought it looked like the the best, most badass Scalectrics car you could have hoped for. Um, just brilliant stuff. I, I love those bright colours on on the cars. One fluorescent accent colour always works. Like the McLaren car that um, I believe Button and Hamilton drove at the same time was really nice. And this Mercedes era with the electric teal or turquoise or whatever you want to call it, um, that's really nice. Nice, nice to look at. But which which watches um, are as attractive as the cars themselves, in your opinion? There's been a bit of a change up this season. So Ferrari had been sponsored by Hublot for God knows how long, probably about 10 years, I'd say, um, that they were in sponsorship with. And it was a very fruitful sponsorship. Um, I'm not hugely into uh, Hublot watches, but I do believe their uh, Ferrari Hublot watches were always quite interesting, um, whether that be the uh, sort of weird tech frame watches that they've done um with the design house or coach worker pin Pininfarina. pin and farina uh they were always quite nice and quite interesting uh but even just like the big bangs they did big bang ferrari i thought was quite cool with the sort of gold flex and the carbon mixed in uh but for this season they uh they quietly dropped out um actually didn't really see anything in terms of news for that they just kind of uh, faded away maybe it was a contract that just expired and they didn't elect to renew uh, i'm not sure but uh for this season richard mill or richard millet they are sponsoring uh ferrari as well um biggest problem i have with that is that richard mill seemed to be sponsoring every single car every single driver on the grid uh, and it's a bit much i mean I, i'm saying that in an exaggerated way they obviously don't sponsor every single uh car and driver but it just feels that way because they've moved around quite a lot they've gone to different teams they've gone to different drivers. Um, and they've just seemingly see uh, Richard Mill on every single driver's wrist as they're doing an interview, um, which is quite a, a benefit to them. Obviously, it's a very expensive watch that they get to keep and enjoy. Um, and it's a very lightweight watch. Um, predominantly, they, they use the carbon or the NTP uh, carbon cases, which you see on their wrist as they're sort of gesticulating with their, with their arms. 
Um, so that's that's always quite interesting. Um, but yeah, kind of uh, I don't know, overegging it a little bit on Richard Richard Mill's part. I mean, this lightweight uh, justification that Richard Mill always uses for its sports centric watches, like the Nadal um, TPT Quartz model that we mentioned on the show last week, I think. Um, it's all well and good, but these athletes rarely wear these watches while competing. Nadal does, of course, but most don't. And uh, drivers don't wear their watches while they're in the car, do they? And they, they are seen to strap them on hurriedly as soon as they exit the cockpit, if I remember rightly. They do, uh, predominantly. I mean, you'll see um, Lewis Hamilton or Valtteri Bottas, his uh, Finnish teammate, uh, strapping on an IWC uh, watch as soon as they get to the podium interviews. Um, Interesting, I saw uh, uh, Valtteri Bottas in his qualifying interview with David Coulthard adjusting the uh, strap on his IWC pilot's chronograph. Um, obviously, just when it was given to him, it wasn't sized properly, so he had to fix that while he was still being able to talk about his uh, his previous lap, which is uh, yeah, a good way to uh, um, sort of be sort of multi, I don't know, <laughs> Yeah, doing doing one thing and doing the, something else at the same time, which was which was interesting. Multitasking, um, Ben. Multitasking. That's it. That's that's the thing. I can't think and talk at the same time. That's uh, that's that's my problem. That must be really difficult. Like when it comes to answering questions in general life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a bane of my life. <laughs> um, so yeah, but uh, but Richard Mill actually, funny enough, um, you will see drivers wearing them whilst they're in the cockpit. Occasionally, not all the time, but uh, I do remember seeing Felipe Massa, the uh, Brazilian driver who drove for Ferrari. Well, it didn't work out for him, did it? Didn't work out for him. Uh, no championships no. for Felipe Massa, thanks to Timo Glock. Very, very close to getting it, but yeah, uh, scuppered at the very last corner, um, unfortunately, for, for his uh, championship hopes. That was a smashing end to a season. I mean, uh, I, I've never been a huge Hamilton supporter. That was Hamilton's first title, right? Wait, when he was driving with McLaren. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that was his first. And then he didn't win one for quite a while after that. And, um, you know, I was quite happy for him to have got that one. In those days, we thought, oh, Vettel's going to go on and win seven, eight, nine, ten, because he looked so dominant for that period with Red Bull. But um, that ending uh, in the in the rain with Glock pulling out of the way um, to let Hamilton pass him for, what was it, fifth place or something he needed to secure the championship and he got it? That was all he needed just to get one point ahead of Felipe Massa in the total standings. Felipe Massa was the race winner of the uh, Brazil Grand Prix in 2008, but um, Hamilton secured just enough points in that race uh, just to get past him on the total leaderboard. Absolutely brutal. It was uh, one of one of the greatest finishes ever. I think as Manchester City's uh, Aguero, Aguero win definitely tops it, but um, that, yeah. Are you talking that. about the Aguero win when they were against QPR in yes. 2012? When they were down, they came back and won 3-2. Uh, Joey Barton completely lost the plot and tried to murder somebody. Yes. Sent off and, yeah, I was there in the pub. I'm, I'm a United fan. I was watching the United game on the other TV on the other side. We had it split down the middle in Surrey. Uh, red one side, blue the other, and the City fans couldn't believe it. I think we'd beaten Sunderland or something something really innocuous, 1-0. And Ferguson was rushing the players off the pitch, just making sure they weren't like celebrating, because at that point we were top of the table and City uh, were a floundering against QPR. And then what a remarkable comeback and what a brilliant win and what a great way to win your first title for 44 years. And uh, I don't begrudge the Sky Blues, that one at all. It was brilliant that United came back and won the title the year after just to sort of right those wrongs before Ferguson left. But um, 
brilliant, brilliant finish. And, uh, you know, that's what I don't begrudge. Man City's performance, but uh, I think many do begrudge uh, Joe Barton's kind of uh, on track and uh, on uh, on pitch antics during that uh, during that game. Well, you know, who, who would have ever thought that Joey Barton would decide a Premier League title? There you go, <laughs> he did it. Legend. Yeah. I like Joey Barton. I think he's I think he's good value. Um, I yeah, I, I do feel a little bit sad that. He, he, he got into such a tizzy uh, at the end of that game and got himself sent off because he'd been playing pretty well that game. But come on, what a great, what a great story! What a storybook ending! What a Hollywood! F- I mean, who, you know, if we'd if United had won um, that league, that would have been, I'm sure, Ferguson's last. I don't think he would have come back again the year after. So it's not like we would have necessarily won any more titles because of it. And just uh, just a brilliant, brilliant bit of bit of theatre, and that's what you want. That's what you want from your sport, and that massa. Massa loss was just, oh God, it's so beautiful because him and his father and family, they were celebrating yeah. jubilantly in, in, the, in the pits. And uh, then Glock was just limping, limping along, couldn't make it to the line ahead of Hamilton. And uh, the, oh, I've never seen such a crestfallen uh, image in my life uh, as the masses realized what had happened and they sort of slunk away from one another to console themselves however best they could. Awful. It was tremendous closer, yeah. And uh, it's a bit unfortunate now that um, we don't tend to see season deciders at the very end of the race, at very end of the um, season. I think uh, a lot of the previous seasons have been decided quite early. Um, and especially now that Abu Dhabi is the final race of the season rather than the Brazilian Grand Prix. The Brazilian Grand Prix is always seen as a very fiery end, sort of very um interesting races there you know just due to the track layout and how short it is uh with Abu Dhabi it's quite wide it's quite spread out and uh it's quite long straights and you'll find that the races are quite processional especially with the sort of tight corners towards the end of the end of the track it's not particularly interesting to watch so it's kind of a shame that we've shifted from you know having the Brazil Grand Prix decide uh the overall winner to having Abu Dhabi kind of you know, figure out right at the end so money talks yeah. baby it does, talks. yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a real shame because you're right. We want fiery racing. We want explode, not literally explosive. Goodness, no, we don't want any of that uh, if we can help it. But we want we want excitement. And uh, I think that the uh, officials need to have a quick word with themselves and figure out what they're going to do with this corner cutting going forward. Otherwise, the season could be thrown into disrepute rather quickly. So we're going to wrap it up there. Um, this was fun. I learned quite a lot about Formula One that I, you know, I hadn't been aware of. So thanks for joining us, Ben. Will we be getting you back on the line at some point to analyze the season when it's closer to its conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the next race is three weeks away, so we've got a weird three-week break right at the beginning, actually. So yeah, we'll see how the uh, season unfolds. And if there's any particular races that uh, are of general interest, then yeah, definitely I'll step in and we can talk about them some more. Brilliant. I'm going to go do my research and find out exactly how many watch brands are involved in Formula One and which drivers wear what watches. And then maybe we can put together an article for FratelloWatches.com that you can write for us, Ben. How about that? Absolutely. Yeah, not bad idea. All right. Thanks, buddy. Uh, We'll speak to you soon. Uh, It was a real pleasure. We'll get back to the smooth booth now where we can find Balazs waiting for us. Welcome back, watch fans. That was Ben Hodges from FatelloWatchers.com. Very interesting to have a third voice on the show, and we hope to be adding to those voices very soon. Justin Jefferson, you know where we are. Give us a call, my friend. All right, Balaj, welcome back, buddy. How was that lie down for you? 
much needed. Oh, jolly good. Jolly good. I'm glad that you're feeling much better now. So let's jump back in to the Wizrander Leagues over in North America. And shall we tackle the MLB next? Ooh. Yeah, I wanted to do that last because it's the, the coolest, I think. But okay, let's do it now. Um, so MLB, you have tons of baseball player and watch partnerships, right? Well, I would have thought so. Yes, but you don't. No, no. So I had to go back all the way to 1954. <laughs> what? I didn't, didn't even know watch ambassadors existed in 1954. But they did. Wow. And I didn't know that either. But Wasp is Wasp. And you know, you need to do your, your research and your homework. And I did mine. And I found um, a very interesting piece of information. And that is that in 1954, Timex had um, a campaign featuring a couple of what, sports people male and female interesting and uh yeah it was i mean 1954 and one of those partnerships uh, or or well in this campaign they they um released some adverts with uh, or, or adverts um advertisements with um rocky marciano no way the boxer for the the boxer 49 and 0 yeah and yeah if you watch the new Coming to America, or the, the Coming to America, uh, the second part of the, the legendary, iconic Eddie Murphy movie from the 80s, you know, the scene when the barbershop, when they talk about Rocky Marciano, Rocky Marciano. So uh, he was in the... You're not laughing, Rob? I'm sorry, I'm just listening. I'm intrigued. Okay. They talk about Rocky Marciano. So uh, <laughs> I, was, I was very um, happy to see Rocky Marciano different, in, a, in a different setup because to me... Obviously, in the fi- I was not really a fan of boxing of the 50s. So to me, Rocky Marciano is the guy from uh, this discussion coming to America. But, that's, but he never played in, in Major League Baseball. But guess who did? Hmm. I have no idea. Why don't you tell me? Yes, you do. Mickey Mantle for the New York Yankees. In the same campaign, there's a few advertisements uh, with Mickey Mantle. And the, the ad reads, amazing test by Mickey Mantle proves Timex watches are really rugged. So what they did is they taped a Timex watch on a bat <laughs> and Mickey Mantle was batting with it. And that's how they proved it. They were like super, super bulletproof. This is amazing. So, we should do that for Fratello's YouTube channel. Yeah, we could. I'm not sure that there's many watches that we're talking about here that would stand up to that kind of treatment, to be quite frank. But wow, 1954, Timex, what a visionary ad campaign that must have been. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's like, hard to believe, but fascinating stuff. Great research. And uh, Thank you. Yeah, I don't think I can top that one with my MLB representative. Um, I did have to go back in time a little bit also. I really was expecting to see one of the modern day superstars rocking something pretty ostentatious but no i went all the way back to 2012 which feels like a million years ago now even though it's less than a decade and i went with randy johnson's partnership with ulysse nardam so randy johnson the big unit he's a hall of fame uh pitcher um he's uh, an imposing man that's that's for sure he had a very very long career he was a 10-time all-star he started his uh, his pro career with the montreal expos which became the Washington Nationals, which is my, my favorite team. He played for the Expos 
um, in 88 to 89. Then he went to the Mariners. He played there for a long time. That was probably how most people growing up with, uh, with Johnson's career remember him. He played there until 98. He spent a short period of time with the Astros before flipping over to the Diamondbacks in Arizona. Now, this is what he's probably most remembered for because he won the World Series with the Diamondbacks in 2001, winning the World Series MVP in the process. That was a pretty impressive period of his life, and uh, he was held in very high regard following that. Uh, he did go on to play for the Yankees just for a year after the D-backs, back to the D-backs for another year, and then finished his career with the Giants in 2009. Three years after hanging up his glove, he got this partnership with Ulysses Nadan. And obviously, UN make watches, shall we say, in the same kind of concept realm as like Richard Mill or Hublot. It's that kind of vibe, you know, a lot of silicon, a lot of like forward thinking mechanics and visages. It's not very traditional in the least. Looks like it could probably stand up to a beating. Totally possible uh, that he could have won one of these while playing had he wished. I think it's a pretty solid partnership. It's not great. It's not anywhere near the level of interest that the Mickey Mantle one was. But there you go. That was my pick. That's a, that's a nice one. I mean, they do daring stuff. It's not done. It's a, it's a, it's a great brand. I, I've always enjoyed their pieces. So, um, yeah. Yeah, hopefully they come back with some, some more new ones and uh, maybe go back to the MLB because Randy Johnson... Um, I mean, he's a real rugged dude. He's, he's kind of like what you want from, uh, from a baseball figure. You know, you can imagine like a really old school baseball card with a player like Randy Johnson on it. And it's mad that he played so long, mad that he played all the way up until 2009 because he looks like, a, looks like a kind of character that in the 1970s or something like that. So yeah, decent. True. We have one league left. We have the NHL to cover. Do you want to go first or shall I? I think, hmm. I think ah, you do. I'll go first, yeah, because I, I have yeah. a feeling that yours is a little bit more grand than mine. So I, um, again, was a bit surprised that there weren't more partnerships to choose from, but I found one that I was really, really happy with, and that is uh, actually a dual partnership. So there's two guys involved in this, and they are linked to the same brand because they are brothers hailing from the same country. So I have the Nylander brothers, um, William and Alexander. They play for the uh, Maple Leafs and the Blackhawks, respectively. Their father also played, I believe he was called Michael Nylander, and he had a decent career which began with the Hartford Whalers, um, a team that became the Carolina Hurricanes, of course, and had one of the greatest logos in sports of all time. So the Nylander brothers are paired up with Sue Sandstrom from Sweden. Um, again, I, I have to go every episode with picking something that I can't pronounce properly. I'm sure that was uh, way off. But for anyone that uh, couldn't interpret what I was trying to say there, this is Sue, so S-J-O with an umlaut, O with an umlaut, that's the first name. And then the second name is Sandstrom, so S-A-N-D-S-T-R-O with another umlaut, M. It is the most umlauty name that I've ever seen in watchmaking. And it's it's a collection that I honestly regard as quite hit and miss. I think there's some there's some average models in there, and there are a couple of absolute ballers and the number one on my list the one that i adore and the one that i often point people in the direction of when they're looking for a dress watch off the beaten track is the royal capital model uh in rose gold especially are you familiar with this piece Balaj? no i have to say absolutely not you just dug deep 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 into uh the world of nhl partnerships and you came up with something that's not really known to a lot of people i'm guessing yeah, it's um, it's not a brand that gets a huge amount of coverage, and it doesn't seem to be that well known outside of its native Stockholm. I have been to Stockholm and seen these in in boutique windows around the place, so I've actually had some uh, hands on experience with them, and I was I was very very impressed by the build quality. 
Um, the movement in the uh, royal capital is made by Voshe, and uh, it has uh, it's a micro rotor. I've never been a huge fan of the uh, bridge layout on this one. If you want to visit the website and take a look at it, then you can get there by going to susanstrom.com. Punct se so that's s j o o s a n d s t r o m dot s e and uh, the royal capital is kind of the flagship model has this yeah this this credible very credible micro rotor movement visible through a sapphire case back I, like I say for me the aesthetic of the bridges is not the very best but the aesthetic of the watch is absolutely supreme it's uh, it's very slim. It has a lovely wide brushed flat bezel with a polished chamfer around the outside edge, which I think is absolutely to die for. The hands, the markers, the uh, slightly oversized second subdial at six o'clock all come together to create what I think is one of the slickest and most underrated dress watches on the market. It's the only one of the watches that I would really, really push and put my full weight behind, but that rose gold one is an absolute peach. So do check it out and have a look at it because I think that's a really, really brilliant one. And the Nylander brothers have, well, smashed it through the back of the net and through the glass on, uh, on this occasion. True. I mean, I just found the watch out. It's cool. It reminds me of an iconic model, which I'm not going to say what it is, because if you guys Google it, you will see the pictures, and I think you have the same idea. But uh, yeah, it's as I said, it's an interesting partnership because it really flies on the radar for me, and I think for many people, you know, it's it's nice to hear uh, about uh, partnerships like this. Well, that's what we try and do on Wasp. We try and bring uh, bring the less less often discussed watch brands into a sharper focus, and I think that this is one that has quite a lot going for it. And if, you, uh, if you're if you Swedish, particularly if you have a fondness for Swedish products and Swedish design, then do take a look at it, because I think that you'd be very impressed by the stuff they're churning out. So over to you for the final one of our Wizard Around the Leagues. Right. So as I said, I was doing my research, and I was, just like when we talked about Major League Baseball, I was surprised that we do not have as many partnerships as we want. And then eventually I, I found one between uh, Nico Hishia, who's a, who's a, a very young 22-year-old um, player for the New Jersey Devils, uh-huh. uh, between him and Breitling. Cool. But uh, he's, a, he's a Swiss player coming from Brick, Switzerland. So he's a very young player. You know, he's playing uh, for the New Jersey Devils since 2017, but obviously he, he played in other leagues beforehand. But he's not really a, a name that you associate with the NHL, right? He's not a, a Jager. He's not a Ovechkin. Or he's not a Wayne Gradsky, who also had a partnership with the same brand earlier. And the brand is Brightly. No way. Yes way. I guess when we talk about Wayne Gretzky, it's no surprise that he had partnerships, right? I mean, he is hockey god. He is hockey god. He is hockey god. He's hockey god. As far as I can tell, he is hockey god. The guy who's right-handed but uses a... Left-handed stick. There you go. Wasp number two, three. Oh, it's a long time ago now. See, we're right right deep into this wasp hole. It's been a while, indeed. Uh, But all jokes aside, so... Wayne Gretzky also had a partnership uh, with Breitling back in the day, just like Nico Hischer. I guess Breitling has a thing for hockey players, young or seasoned, up-and-coming or superstar, which is good. I love it. I love the, the partnership. So basically cheating because I'm giving you two names, right? Yeah, this is the one that I, I, I came up with. And I'm, I'm really um, interested now to see what Nico uh, is going to bring to his career, to the New Jersey Devils and to Breitling. But um, on the other hand, when we talk about Wayne Gretzky, I mean, we know, man, we know he's, uh, well, he's, he's the great, iconic, legendary hockey player 
of our generation, I guess, of our time. Well, um, I think that, you know, there are very few people that will even enter the conversation about who is as great as the great one himself, Gordie Howe, maybe, and um, Mario Lemieux, perhaps, but same same generation, a uh, lot of overlap, and Gretzky is the name on everyone's lips. I, I mean, Sid Crosby is going to be in that conversation, maybe uh, Alex Ovechkin also. Right, there's a, there's a, you know, you have a lot of players, of course, like you have in any major sport, you know, basketball or, or football. But as far as I'm concerned, or my generation, uh, I think Wayne Gretzky is the greatest ice hockey player. And this is nothing against all the other legends. And that's, but, a, um, yeah. and that's a fair choice. And it's a very fair partnership and a massive brand for a massive legend. So with that, we're going to round up episode 48 of Fratello One Air 6.0, Wasp 6.0. And we are going to bid you farewell. We will be back next week in the Smooth Booth where we'll be talking about some more American sports, talking about some more luxury watches. And if there's anything you'd like to hear on the podcast, please let us know in the comments section below. If you would like to phone in and talk to us about your favorite sports or your favorite watches, then do get in touch because we'd love to have you here with us. Balaj, thank you again. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for taking time out of uh, what looks to be a pretty laborious morning for you and uh, I really appreciate it much love much love all right guys until next time stay safe and keep on ticking